I want to start with a question uh, as, we, as we dive into this series together. What are you thinking? This is a question that maybe uh, if you have a spouse, maybe they ask you, maybe you're driving down the road or you're just you're kind of quiet at the dinner table. And it's like, what are you thinking? Um, a question like, what were you thinking? That's not a question you want. Like, what were you thinking? You don't want that question. But what are you thinking is a question that's kind of common. And so when Abby, my wife, asked me that question, uh, sometimes I have a good answer. Sometimes I'm really locked in and connected to what's going on. Like, what are you thinking about this? And it's like, oh, I actually have a thought there. Sometimes my mind just goes. It kind of drifts into different places. And so uh, a lot of times I'll be like, oh, nothing. But in, like, what's really happening, she's like, what are you thinking? I was like, well, I'm actually kind of thinking, like, why is avocado toast like the most expensive thing on breakfast menus? It's avocado, which costs a dollar, and toast, which used to be free. They just throw that in, and they drizzle it with some olive oil, and now that's fourteen fifty. That's very confusing to me. So I think about stuff. So I'm a deep person, um, and I think about stuff like that uh, pretty often. My son, uh, Joe Slee, who came home from uh, Haiti three years ago, he's still learning some of the nuances of the English language, and I love it. Like, he's this close to kind of getting all the nuances, but they're still a little bit off a little bit. So sometimes I'll ask him, like, what's up, man, which is just the kid version of what are you thinking. And uh, so I'm like, what's up, man? And he's like, good. And I'm like, well, not exactly. That's not a perfect answer, but okay. And then we just kind of move on together. But what are you thinking? What dominates your thoughts? Last week uh, at Easter, we looked at how Jesus made the claim that he's the resurrection and the life, or as we looked at in another translation, I'm the guy that makes people come alive and stay alive. So his resurrection is supposed to change things in the here and now, not just way out in the future, in the actual here and now. But if he's the guy that makes people come alive and stay alive, how are we supposed to live? Like if we have this life now, what is it supposed to look like? What's the best way then to come alive? The Bible has a word for it. The Bible actually has a word for the best way to, to come alive and stay alive, and the word is holy. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks together, holiness or, or being holy, living a holy life. The scripture tells us is the best way to live. But holy or holiness, that's kind of a churchy word. So what does that mean? It's pretty simple what it means. It means to be set apart, but not just different different and set apart for a purpose. So you're different on purpose. That's what it means to be holy. This is what God calls his people to. He's long called his people to. Uh, John Oswald, who wrote this great book, Called to Be Holy, says, here then is the goal of salvation, the salvation that God has always offered, the salvation that he brings into fullness through Christ. Here's the goal of salvation, that God's people should be holy, that they should share his character. Jesus was once asked, what's the best way to live? How, how, how do we sum up all that God has called us to? If, if, if what God is calling us to is the best way to live, how do you sum it all up? Is there a Cliff's Notes version? And Jesus actually answers, yeah, there actually is a Cliff's Notes version of all that God has called us to. Love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all you've got, and love your neighbor like God loves them. That sums it up. If you pursue that, that's what you're made for. Jesus is saying, now that you have come alive, Bring your full self. Notice that your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, all of yourself. Don't, don't turn off your mind when you come alive. Don't turn off your feelings. Don't turn off your emotions. Don't turn off your actions. Bring all of that in line with who God is. That's what we're called to do. Don't check any of yourself at the door. Jesus constantly reminds us, don't check any of yourself at the door. Bring all of yourself. Jesus says, this is what you're made for. This is what he came to free us for, to be holy to be set apart, to be different on purpose. Yet the reality is oftentimes we choose other things. We choose to not be different on purpose. 
We choose to make our lives not about these best things, loving God with all we've got and loving our neighbor like God loves, and we choose, we choose lesser things. And so we're going to look at over these next three weeks why that is and how that can change. So in the series, we're looking at, at, at coming to life, at holiness, and how we can pursue holy thinking, holy feeling, and, and holy doing, holy, holy actions. And this week, we're going to focus in on holy thinking, because change minds lead to changed lives. I'm going to say that again because I think that's important. Changed minds lead to changed lives. And the scriptures kind of, kind of point us in that direction. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It doesn't say as a man thinks in his head or as a person thinks in their head, as a person thinks in their heart. There's a head-heart connection. Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 12 uh, verse 2, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Don't be like the world, but rather be transformed. How? How do we be transformed? By the renewing of our minds. He's saying that life change can actually come from, begins with our minds, our thinking. Changed minds lead to changed lives. And so if we're called to be holy, what does it look like to, to be set apart? Well, it starts with holy thinking. So if our lives are marked by being different, what's up? What are you thinking? It's a question that, uh, that Jesus wrestles with and asks a, a, a guy that he comes in contact with in Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. And oftentimes we think this conversation is about money, and it is, but it's not even close to what it's all about. There's so much more. Let me give a little bit of backdrop in the conversation before we dive into it together, and it's in your bulletin. But the backdrop is this. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus has had this pivotal moment with his followers. Right in the middle of the gospel of Mark, it's like almost dead center of the gospel, Jesus asks his followers, who do you say that I am? And they have this conversation about that. And then finally, Peter, who's always the first to speak up and he's always the loudest, uh, some, sometimes to his own detriment, he, he says, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, you're the one who's going to set this whole world upside down and you're going to set this whole world right. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And then after that, everything slows to a halt. The first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark take about two and a half years. It's a frenetic pace. Jesus is doing ministry. He's healing. He's teaching. He's having these confrontations with people. And then you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. The last half of the Gospel of Mark takes about two weeks. It's Jesus slowly and methodically showing what type of Savior he is, that he's a suffering Savior who's going to go to the cross for our sake. That's what kind of Messiah he is. And so it's in this section, this slow, methodical, intentional section that we find this interaction in Mark chapter 10. And this is Jesus being very clear about who he is and what the kingdom he came to bring is supposed to look like. And so Jesus and the disciples are headed to Jerusalem where he's eventually going to be arrested and tried and crucified and eventually will rise again. And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus has this interaction about God honoring Jesus reflecting thinking. That is two things. It's, it's countercultural and it's counterintuitive. This holy thinking that we're called to is countercultural and it's counterintuitive. And it's better than what we often choose. Okay, so that's the, the context for what's going on. Let's get into the word. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it picks up. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, 
he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so this is actually a good question. Jesus doesn't scold this question. The young man wants to know how he can be sure of his salvation, how he can be sure he's right with God. It's actually a good question. Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. This is probably Jesus probing for who this guy who's come up to him, who he thinks he is. Do you think I'm just a good teacher, a good moral person, or do you think I'm actually God? Because only God is good, but you call me good. So he's probably probing there a little bit. You know the commandments, Jesus continues. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So we know that he's a young guy and we know that he's wealthy. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to one another, who then can be saved? It's the same question the young guy comes and asks Jesus. How, how can we know? How can we be saved then? What, what's the requirement? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's, it's actually impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up like he does. We have every, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Clue in on this. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. All right, there's so much here, we don't have time to get into all of it, but let's focus on this. This man asked the right question, how can I be near God? Or a different way of asking it, how can I reflect his character? How can I look like God in this world? And Jesus goes about trying to change his mind, his, his thinking about what keeps him near God or keeps us near God. And he gives action steps. He does give an action step, and oftentimes we clue in on that. But what he's after is what this guy thinks in his heart about himself and about others. All right, so let me, let me just pause here for a second and just say, I know some of you are already on the verge of checking out because you're like, oh, I get it, we're talking about a rich young, rich young ruler, wealthy guy, but I'm not rich, this isn't a sermon for me, maybe somebody else beside me needs this, and so that's, that's great. Uh, but if you make more than, than $2 a day, you're in the top 5% of wealthy people in the world. And Jesus was homeless. And so you probably qualify as someone who would be wealthy and therefore someone that Jesus would have this conversation with. So don't check out. And let me say this as well, as just to, to kind of set this clear, work matters, right? It's part of our design. It's part of God's good plan. It's part of his good intention. Before there was any fall, there was work. God said, move my good creation forward. So work is good. But we as a culture, and particularly as individuals, we've, we've bought into this idea 
And, and here's where the problem is. We bought into this idea that what we produce and subsequently what we can own is directly proportional to our value. The increased production equals increased safety. If I do more, I'm worth more, and I earn more, and therefore I can rest more. And if I earn less, I can't rest at all until I earn more to own more to have more safety. And maybe you wonder if this is an issue for you. I think a lot of times I think this isn't an issue for me. I have a good work-life balance. I don't think too much about my possessions. I don't hold on too tightly to them. I don't, I'm not dominated by that. I don't need my work to validate me. I, it's good work, but, it, but I don't need it to validate me. I think I've got it in balance. Um, but around a year ago, I was eating breakfast with, uh, with, with Joe Slee that I told you about earlier. And the kids were getting ready to head off to school, and I was getting ready to head off to work. And Joe Lee was seven at the time. He, he says, um, Dad, are you going to work today? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to work today. He's like, you going to church? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, going to church, buddy. And then he says this. He says, so when you go there, are you just going to, like, sit there? And I launch into this tirade, and I'm not joking about it. It was a tirade about, no, I am very important, and I have so many important things to do. And I start listing out my calendar. I actually pulled my phone out, and it was like, I got this meeting, I have this meeting, I got to write. This, this is an important thing that I have to do. And I think he was just trying to connect with me. I don't think, but I was personally offended that a seven-year-old didn't think I was valuable. So if you're wondering, if you're like, do I have too much like, stock in, in what I do, just have a seven-year-old ask you, hey, when you go to work, are you just going like, to sit there and see how you respond? I gave that response because I was nervous that a seven-year-old didn't think my work mattered. Right? That, that I wasn't valuable enough, that I wasn't contributing enough. And I did that. And if you're like me, we do things like this because some of our identity, some of our value, some of our worth gets tied up in our work and what we can produce and achieve and own. But the problem is, and, and Jesus knew this, that's why he said to this young, wealthy guy, the things that he did, what, what, what we can accomplish and what we can accumulate are actually not great things to hold on to or to build our lives around. They're just not that great because they make a promise they can't deliver on. I've shared some of these statistics before, but I just think they're so, uh, so illuminating. Compared to 55 years ago, Americans own twice as many cars, eat out twice as much per person. As a nation, we fill 1.8 billion, that's billion with a B, square feet of personal storage space. That's storage for the stuff we own but we don't have room for. The median income in the U.S. has reached a record high, $59,000 per year. Yet, 14% of people who make $75,000 a year or more in America feel underemployed, a designation that's usually reserved for people who make about half that amount. And there's 16 million people in the U.S. who have some form of depressive or depression-type episodes. And let me say this. If you're struggling, if you're hurting, um, please, please don't go through it alone. Please tell someone if you're, if you're struggling. Let, let, let me know. Let someone know. Let us help. Let us be part of caring for you. But what these statistics tell us, in the words of David Meyer, who wrote the, has a great book, The American Paradox, compared to our grandparents, we've grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been, uh, has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Not one iota of increased subjective well-being. Why not? 
Because even if our culture tells us to go after this, to buy this, to consume this, and you'll feel happy because you'll be fulfilled and you'll find life, just watch any commercial. That's what it's built on. Even though our culture tells us that there are things that promise life, but they don't deliver. And we can easily choose to not be set apart for a purpose and instead choose to pursue our own purpose. We think what we accomplish and what we can accumulate can make us come to life. But what if they don't? What if what we accomplish and what if what we accumulate don't actually bring us to life? What if thinking that is countercultural is the beginning of what does? So I remember I said, this is about money, but it's not even close to what this actual interaction is about. Ultimately, this is about how you think about yourself and how you think about others. How freeing would it be if we measured life not by how much we can accumulate, which both the scriptures and social sciences tell us that's not actually where life is found, but rather we measured life by how much we turn the world upside down in love. If our thinking was changed from always chasing more to trying to love more. This is what Jesus is offering this wealthy young guy. That's what he's offering. When he says, sell everything and and then come follow me, that's what he's offering. He's like, I'm trying to free you up. And he offers this to the disciples and he offers this to us. Change your minds about the best way to live because there's freedom there. Jesus is inviting this young man and the disciples and us to change our minds because he knows that changed minds lead to changed lives. And this conversation with the rich young ruler comes on the heels of another conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. If you go back a chapter in chapter 9, his closest followers, Jesus' closest followers, they've been with him for two and a half years, watching his every step, and oftentimes, like we said last week, they don't get exactly what Jesus is up to. They don't understand him, which should give us some consolation as we try to follow Jesus when we don't understand what he's up to. But his followers are, are along the way, and, uh, and they sit down at a house, uh, Jesus and his followers, and Jesus is like, hey, what were you guys talking about on the road back there, and I actually love this because the disciples are like, nothing, nothing, uh, and then Jesus is like, yeah, except I'm Jesus and I know everything, and so I already know what you were talking about, which is my paraphrase, but it's pretty close to what he actually says, and he says, I know you were talking about who's the greatest among you. I know you were talking about who's the most important, who's in first place, who's the best, who gets validated. I know that's what you were talking about. And then he says, if anybody would be first, he has to be last of all and servant of all. See, holy thinking, different on purpose thinking that points to God's character, it's countercultural. But it's also counterintuitive. It's, it's kind of, it's upside down. You ever been driving down the road and uh, you, you're, you're in a hurry, right? There's three lanes of traffic or whatever. And, uh, and then it just grinds to a stop. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, man, this is awful. But there's this one lane over here that's just going, just moving right along. And you're like, man, I need to be in that lane. Even though you see a sign that says, in a quarter mile, this lane ends, you're like, I could probably, I should get over there. That's probably where I need to go. It's counterintuitive to say, you know what? It might be best for me and others to actually stay in this lane so that we can get traffic moving because I know that sign is probably right. And those people are probably wrong. So if you're the person that gets over, just you know, take that for what it's worth. But... It's counterintuitive thinking, but this is what Jesus is talking about. 
It's the kind of thinking that Jesus talks about over and over and over again. It may seem easier or better or faster to, to move one way, but there's a better way where everyone gets moving together. His teaching are full of this counterintuitive thinking. The last, being last is better th- than being first. But many who are first will be last and the last first, Mark 10. Serving is, is better than being served. If anyone would be first, he must be last and be servant of all, Mark 9. You see, these are bookends here. Mark is the shortest gospel. And so anytime Mark has these repetitive uh, type themes that are coming up, they must be important because he doesn't mince words. He doesn't waste words. This is clearly at the heart of what Jesus is teaching. There are other counterintuitive teachings of Jesus. Submission is actually better than control. Not my will, but yours be done, God, Luke 22. Humility is better than exaltation. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Matthew 23. Giving is better than receiving. Give and it will be given to you, Luke 6. Sacrifice is better than safety. Whoever loses his life will actually save it, Luke 9. And heavenly treasures are better than earthly treasures. Give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven, Luke 10. All of these help us let loose of what we can hold on to to gain what we can't earn, life. We try to hold on to these things, but this counterintuitive thinking says, let go of it, and you'll actually gain the thing you're after. You'll actually gain life. This is how you come alive and stay alive, thinking that is countercultural and thinking that is counterintuitive. And imagine if people started thinking this way. If we actually started thinking this way, it wouldn't just change our thoughts. It would actually change the world. I often hear that the world is angry. Maybe you've heard that as well. Maybe you kind of feel that way. The the world is, is kind of an angry place. That anger and division and even hatred are kind of running things now. And oftentimes, Twitter or Facebook, social media, that's what's cited Right? It's like anger's running things now, just look at social media. Because you can see people that are angry at their spouses, or angry at their children, or angry at their parents, or their bosses, or angry at the government, or angry at rich people, or angry at poor people, or angry at God. You can see it. But you want to know something interesting. It actually doesn't have to be this way. And I don't mean this in the ethereal, like it doesn't have to be this way. I mean like it actually doesn't have to be this way. Facebook works in algorithms. And so it'll put up an ad that's similar to the last ad that you clicked on. It'll, it'll build a profile that's very custom for you. So what you see on Facebook isn't what other people see on Facebook. It customizes your feed based on your patterns of behavior and speech. It's creepy, I know, but, but it'll, it'll show you more of what you engage in more, and it will show you less of what you engage in less. And so if negativity and anger is something that you're like, see, it's running things. It actually might be one of the greatest litmus tests on whether or not our thinking is countercultural and counterintuitive. We can just check our feeds. If it looks like anger and consumerism and only previews of the next blockbuster movie and no humility or joy or sacrifice or hope or love, it might just be a mirror. 
Remember what Jesus said in verse 21 to this guy that comes up to him. What do I have to do to inherit an eternal life? And he says, look, you know the commandments, right? And he's like, yeah, I know the commandments. I've lived them all. And he's like, one more thing you lack. You're gripping on too tightly to your wealth. You're making it what you're about. So you're actually going to have to let loose of that and follow me. That's where life is going to be found. That's how you get near God. Remember, it says Jesus looked at the young man and he loved him. He isn't outing him to try to hurt him. He's outing him to free him. By changing his mind about where he can find life. Jesus was asking this young man, he's asking us to think of himself and people around him in a way that is countercultural, in a way that is counterintuitive. You think holding on to these things will bring you life, but they don't. And so if we followed him, in, in our workplace, and I want to get as practical as we can about this countercultural and counterintuitive thinking as we close. If we followed him in our workplace and actively sacrificed for support, to support others rather than, than only chose the safe route as a mean of advancement for ourselves, if in our marriages we said, you know what, the, the call, the challenge, what I'm about, what I'm for, what I, what, I'm, what I need to make my life about is out serving my spouse. That's what I'm called to. That's what the scriptures call me to. That's, what I'm gonna, that's my job is to outserve my spouse. If in our neighborhoods we said, you know what, I'm going to risk for the people around me. I'm going to try to get to know them so I can be in a position to serve them if they're in need rather than seeing our time as our own and everybody else gets pushed out. If, if with our free time we, we didn't look for ways to, to numb out or beat others down on social media, but we looked for ways to build other up, actually actively did that, that counter-cultural thinking. If with our time and our money we looked for ways to care for others, we'd see life and we'd see freedom. This is that upside-down, counter-cultural, counter-intuitive thinking that Jesus is inviting us into. If anyone be first, he or she must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus modeled this by laying his life down for us, something that we're actually going to take some time and, and remember and celebrate together as we share communion together to close. So he modeled it for us. He also empowered it through his resurrection, through the power of the resurrection, where he walked out of his own grave and he said, nothing can hold back my way of love. And he turns to us. And he says, will you follow me? Because if you do, there's life. So, what's up? What are you thinking? Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this challenge. Thank you that, that every time you challenge us, um, it comes with, with your loving care. You don't out us to shame us. You don't... You don't out us to, to, to kick us off the team. You out us because you love us. You convict us. You, 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 you open our eyes so that we might move toward you because you love us, because you want us to come to life. So I pray that as we move through uh, this day and as we move through our days, we would remember that you're inviting us to think in a way that's counter-cultural and counter-intuitive, that we might be different on purpose in our thinking so that we might point to you and your goodness in this world. People might actually be interested in who you are by how we think. 
That is an awesome opportunity and an awesome responsibility, so we thank you for it, and we pray that you would be near us as we try to pursue holy thinking in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.